This Good Friday, uh, we seek to gain an insider's view of what was happening through the eyes of Jesus himself. He spoke seven short but significant sentences from the cross, which together throw light on what was happening as he hung there on that cross. Now, no one of the evangelists records all of those seven sentences. Matthew and Mark, for example, only preserve one of them, the cry of dereliction, while of the remaining six, they're divided equally between Luke and John. And the Christian church down the centuries and in every place has cherished these so-called seven words from the cross as disclosing the otherwise unknown thoughts of Jesus. Now, none of them was uttered in bitterness or complaint. And as we'll see, each is an expression either of his great love for us or of his dreadful work of sin-bearing or of his final triumph and victory. And we begin with his prayer for his executioners. Father, forgive. We'll find the passage in our order of service. And a little time clock to pinpoint the different events of the day. Luke 23, 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Well, the first three words from the cross portray Jesus as the example. They express the love he showed to others. He says, do not weep for me, verse 28. And nor did he weep for himself. He didn't dwell in self-pity on his pain and loneliness, nor on the gross injustice of what was being done to him. Indeed, he had no thought for himself, and he had nothing left now to give away. Even his clothes had been taken from him. But he was still able to give people his love. And the cross epitomizes his self-giving as he showed his concern for the men who crucified him, the mother who bore him, and the penitent who was dying at his side. His first word 
word was his prayer for the forgiveness of his executioners. Think about it. This is remarkable. The physical and emotional sufferings had already been intolerable for him. But now he'd been stripped and laid on his back and the rough hands of the soldiers had wielded their hammers clumsily. Surely now he would think of himself. Surely now he would complain against God like Job or plead with God to avenge him or that he himself might have exhibited a little self-pity. But no, he thinks only of others. He may well have cried out in pain, but his first word is a prayer for his enemies. The two criminals beside him curse and swear, but not Jesus. He practices what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So who then was he praying for? Well, no doubt especially for the Jewish leaders who had rejected their Messiah. And in answer to Jesus' prayer, they were granted a 40-year reprieve, during which many thousands of them came to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. It was only 40 years later, in AD 70, that the judgment of God fell on the nation and Jerusalem was taken, and the temple destroyed. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we hate nothing that you have made, and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Make in us new and contrite hearts, that lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, we may receive from you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through the merits of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today you will be with me in paradise and the salvation of a criminal. All four evangelists tell us that three crosses were erected at Golgotha the place called the skull, that fateful morning. They make it plain that Jesus was on the middle cross while the two robbers, or criminals as Luke calls them, were crucified on either side of him. At first, both thieves joined in a chorus of hate to which Jesus was subjected, Matthew tells us. Only one continued, however, hurling insults at Jesus and challenging him to save himself and them. But the second thief rebuked the first, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then turning to Jesus, the penitent robber said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This ascription of kingship to Jesus is indeed remarkable. No doubt the penitent thief had heard the priests mocking 
Jesus' claims to be king of Israel. And he had probably read the inscription over Jesus' head, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He'd also seen Jesus being quiet, displaying a kind of regal dignity. And he had come to believe that Jesus was a king. He had also heard Jesus' prayer for the forgiveness of his executioners. And forgiveness is what he knew he needed since he'd confessed that he was being punished justly. To his cry to be remembered, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. There were no recriminations. He was not reproached that he'd repented only at the 11th hour. No doubt was cast on the genuineness of his repentance. Jesus simply gave this penitent believer the assurance he longed for. He promised him not only entry into paradise, involving the joy of Christ's presence, but an immediate entry that very day. And he assured him of these things with his I tell you the truth, the last time Jesus used that formula. I imagine that during the long hours of pain that followed, after Jesus had died, that this forgiven thief held himself together on the sure and saving promise which he had received from Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, you see that we have no power of our own to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, so that we may be defended from all ills that may befall the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And we turn to the third sentence where Jesus commends his mother. In John 19, 25, we read, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Perhaps Jesus closed his eyes as he bore the brunt of the first onslaught of pain. Perhaps, though, as it subsided a bit, he opened them again. At all events, he looked down from the cross, and he saw a little group of faithful women and the Apostle John. And then he saw his mother. She was, of course, very precious to him from a human point of view. True, she'd not always understood him, and once or twice he had to speak firmly when she stood in the way of doing his father's will. 
Nevertheless, she was his mother. He had been conceived in her womb by the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. She had given birth to him, laid him in a manger, and cared for him during his childhood. It had been she who taught him the biblical stories of the patriarchs, kings and prophets, and of the plan and purpose of God. She had also set him a radiant example of godliness. Now we read that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, a gracious and sorrowing lady. It's hard to imagine the depth of her grief as she watched him suffer. Old man Simeon's prophecy, fulfilled at the time of Jesus' birth, well, spoken at the time of Jesus' birth, was now being fulfilled, that a sword would pierce her own soul. Jesus thinks not of his pain, but hers, and he is determined to spare her the anguish of seeing him die. So he avails himself of a right that scholars tell us a crucified man had, even from the cross, which was to make a testamentary disposition. Using the terminology of family law, he put her under John's protection and care and put John under hers. Immediately, John took her away to his Jerusalem home. Looking back over these first three words, we are amazed at the unselfishness of Jesus. He had no thought for himself. In spite of the pain and shame he was experiencing, he prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies, he promised paradise to a penitent criminal, and he provided for his bereaved mother. This love as scripture says to us, is live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let us pray. Grant, almighty God, that we who deserve to be punished for our evil deeds may by your grace and mercy be spared through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Jesus' fourth sentence, his cry of dereliction, Matthew 27. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the first three words from the cross, uh, they portray Jesus as our example. The fourth and next the fifth portray him as our sin bearer. The crucifixion took place at about 9 a.m. in the morning, the third hour in the way in which they did their chronology. And the first three words from the cross seem to have been spoken near the beginning of this period. And then there was silence 
at about noon, the sixth hour, when the sun was at the meridian, an inexplicable darkness covered the countryside. It cannot have been a natural eclipse of the sun because the feast of the Passover took place at full moon. So it was a supernatural phenomenon, perhaps intended by God to symbolize the horror of great darkness into which the soul of Jesus now plunged. It lasted three hours, during which no word escaped the lips of the suffering Saviour. He bore our sins in silence. Then suddenly, at about 3 p.m., the ninth hour, Jesus broke the silence and spoke the remaining four words from the cross in rapid succession, beginning with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This terrible cry is recorded by Matthew and Mark alone and in the original Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbachthani. The onlookers, the onlookers who said he is calling Elijah, verse 47, were almost certainly jesting. No Jew could have been so ignorant of Aramaic as to make that foolish blunder. Everybody agrees that Jesus was quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. But why did he quote it and declare himself forsaken, abandoned by God? Logically, there can only be two explanations. Either Jesus was mistaken and not forsaken, or he was telling the truth and he was forsaken. We have to reject the first explanation. It's inconceivable that Jesus, in the moment of his greatest surrender, could have been mistaken, and that his sense of God-forsakenness was imaginary. The alternative explanation is simple and straightforward. Jesus was not mistaken. The situation on the cross was of God forsaken by God. The estrangement was due to our sin and their just reward. And Jesus expressed this terrible experience of God-forsakenness by quoting the only scripture that foretold it and that he had perfectly fulfilled. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who in your tender love towards mankind sent your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross so that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. Grant that we may both follow the example of his patience and also have our part in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As we consider Jesus' agony of thirst. John 19. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it 
put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. At the time of his crucifixion, Jesus was offered wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it, perhaps because he was determined to be in full possession of his senses while suffering for us on the cross. Hours later, however, on emerging from the God-forsaken darkness and knowing that the end was near, Jesus said, I am thirsty. In response, the bystanders soaked a sponge of wine vinegar, which was the Roman soldier's common drink, and lifted it on a stalk of hyssop to Jesus' lips. This is the only word from the cross that expressed Jesus' physical pain. He spoke it, the evangelist added, that scripture might be fulfilled. Indeed, it had been prophesied twice in the Psalms. In Psalm 22:15, it is written, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. While in Psalm 69, 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. It would be a mistake to suppose, however, that a literal physical thirst exhausts the significance of Jesus' fifth cry from the cross. His thirst, like the darkness, was also surely figurative. If the darkness of the sky symbolises the darkness in which our sins enveloped Jesus, and if the death of his body was to symbolise his spiritual death, then his thirst symbolised the torment of separation from God. Darkness, death, thirst. What are these but what the Bible calls hell? Outer darkness, the second death, the lake of fire, all expressing the horror of exclusion from God. This is what our Saviour suffered for us on the cross. Thirst is an especially poignant symbol because Jesus had earlier said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. But he who satisfies our thirst himself now experiences on the cross a ghastly thirst. He longs, like the rich man in the parable, that Lazarus will dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. So, here, Jesus thirsted on the cross that we might never thirst again. Lasting God, by whose spirit the whole body of the church is governed and sanctified, receive our prayers, which we offer to you for the many different members of your holy church, so that everyone in his vocation and ministry may truly and devoutly serve you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
And so we now come to the last two sentences that Jesus uttered. His shout of triumph, it is finished, and his final surrender. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So we read from, well, we will read them as I comment on them. In the first three words from the cross, we saw Jesus as our example. In the fourth and fifth, we saw him as our sin-bearer. And now in the last two, he appears as the conqueror, for they express the victory that he has won for us. We could perhaps claim that the words of the sixth cry, it is finished, are the most momentous ever spoken. Already in anticipation, he has claimed that he has completed the work he had come into the world to do, in uh, John 17, verse 4. So next, he makes a public declaration of it. His cry is not the despairing groan of one who is dying in resignation or defeat. It is a shout, according to Matthew and Luke, uttered in a loud voice, Matthew 27, 50 proclaiming a resounding victory. The Greek verb is in the perfect tense, indicating an achievement with lasting results. It might be rendered, it has been and remains forever accomplished. For Christ has made what the letter to the Hebrews calls one single sacrifice for sins and what Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer called a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. In consequence, because Jesus had finished the work of sin-bearing, there is nothing left for us to do or even to contribute. And to demonstrate the satisfactory nature of what Christ has done, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, Matthew says in his chapter 27, in order to show that the hand of God had done it. This curtain had hung for centuries between the outer and the inner sanctuaries as an emblem of the inaccessibility of God to sinners for no one might penetrate beyond the veil into the presence of God except for the high priest on the day of atonement. But now the veil was torn in half and discarded, for it was needed no longer. The worshippers in the temple courts gathered that afternoon for the evening sacrifice were dramatically informed of another and better sacrifice by which they could draw near to God. And then his final surrender. Jesus called out with a loud voice, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. None of the evangelists says that Jesus died. They seem deliberately to avoid the word. They do not want to give the impression that in the end, death claimed him and that he had had to yield to its authority. Death did not claim him as its victim. He seized it as its victor. Between them, the evangelists use four different expressions, each of which 
places the initiative in the process of dying in Jesus' own hands. Mark says, breathed his last. Matthew, that he gave up his spirit. While Luke records his words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But John's expression is the most striking, namely that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The verb is the same word which was used of Barabbas, the priests, Pilate, and the soldiers who handed over Jesus. But now Jesus uses it of himself, handing over his spirit to the Father and his body to death. And notice that before he did this, he bowed his head. It's not that he first died and then his head fell forward onto his chest. It was the other way round. The bowing of the head was his final act of surrender to the will of the Father. So by word and deed, bowing the head and declaring that he was handing over his spirit, Jesus indicated that his death was his own voluntary act. Jesus could have escaped death right up to the last minute. As he said in the garden, he could have summoned more than 12 legions of angels to rescue him. He could have come down from the cross as his mockers challenged him to do but he did not. Of his own free will and deliberate choice, he gave himself up to death. It was he who determined the time, the place, and the manner of his departure. The last two words from the cross, finished and I commit my spirit, proclaim Jesus as the conqueror of sin and death. We must come humbly to the cross, deserving nothing but judgment, nothing but mercy, and Christ will then both deliver us from the guilt of sin and the fear of death. Let us pray. Merciful God, you have made all people and hate nothing that you have made. Nor do you desire the death of sinners, but rather that they should be converted and live. Have mercy on the Jewish people and all who do not know you or who deny the faith of Christ crucified. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart and contempt for your word and bring them home to your fold. Blessed Lord, so that we may all become one flock under one shepherd, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.